from uh, about 15 years on up, uh, a great deal of my thoughts were uh, basically unshareable. We are all evil in some form or another. Yes, I am not 100%, but I am evil. My mother was a, a sick, angry, hungry, and very sad woman. I hated her, but I wanted to love my mother. This is Serial Killing, a podcast. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello again, and welcome to Serial Killing, a podcast. My name is Alyssa Carroll. Here, we talk about serial killers as well as delve into other topics within our beloved true crime community. I come at this from a psychological perspective, so we look at past family members, childhood experiences, and other things that could have contributed to these people evolving into who they became. Special thanks to my patrons who voted for this episode. Thank you so much. You are truly appreciated. And for anyone else, please feel free to join my patrons so that you can vote on who will be covered next or get early access to the podcasts. Like, share, and subscribe. It might just help our little community grow. Also, if you guys hear some stuff in the background, I was not able to film in my closet, which is my filming uh, studio, but the petting zoo that I have for pets are just up and walking around. So if you hear stuff in the background, it's probably one of them. So today's podcast was voted for by patrons, and it was originally going to be on both James Holmes and Nicholas Cruz, and whether or not we had any information, you know, about how their lives are now. But you guys know me. You know I'm going to give you the whole story, and as I wrote, it just got longer and longer. So either grab a snack and settle in, or make sure you have your damn seatbelt on and get down the road. This is now part two of where are they now? Here we go. So Nicholas Jacob Cruz was born on September 24th, 1998 in Margate, Florida. Probably mispronounced that. His mother was Brenda Norma Woodard, born in roughly 1956, and his father is, well, unknown. You see, Brenda was a drug addicted, violent sex worker who said that her pregnancy with him was due to rape. So let's get into what I could find out about Brenda because it's very important. Per the testimony of a longtime friend at Nicholas's trial, Brenda lived a sad and disturbing life. Her criminal history, according to an article written for the Tampa Bay Times, began in Florida in 1983 when she was 26 years old. She was arrested and charged for a concealed weapon. Five years later, she was arrested for cocaine possession. New charges were added nearly every year until after 2011 when Nicholas was 13 years old. 
But during her criminal career, she was busted for crack cocaine, amphetamines, codeine, she stole cars, and was arrested for that more than once, running from the police, I mean, on and on. So the friend testified that they had met and become friends in the very early 90s. At that time, Brenda was working as a sex worker along a stretch of road in southern Florida around Fort Lauderdale. This friend and Brenda would smoke crack, snort cocaine, smoke weed, and drink together every single day. The friend herself began working as a prostitute. But after many arrests, including Brenda being arrested too, the friend decided to leave Florida to try to get clean. Now, the friend moved back down to Florida in the late 90s, and according to her, the only thing Brenda cared about at the time was drinking alcohol. She drank like a malt liquor beer, um, doing drugs, and whatever she had to do to get the alcohol and the drugs, and nothing else really mattered. Most of the time, it was prostitution that funded her habits, but she would also steal expensive cuts of meat and trade that for drugs from her dealer. She didn't like to prostitute herself because she was a lesbian and she wasn't attracted to, nor did she really even like men, but she did what she had to to support her habits. But again, the friend and Brenda would smoke crack and drink to excess together daily. This friend stated that until very, very recently, she had had no idea that Brenda had an older daughter. And we'll get to the daughter, okay? Just stick with me. So in June of 1998, 42-year-old Brenda and the friend were pulled over and busted with drugs and were arrested. Nicholas was born in September of that same year, which means that Brenda was roughly six months pregnant with him at this time. The friend had found out only days before the arrest when Brenda was getting sick to her stomach. The friend asked her if she was dope sick and Brenda replied that no, she was just pregnant. The friend was understandably shocked and began to tell her that she shouldn't be doing drugs and drinking so heavily because she was pregnant. The friend said Brenda did not care about the welfare of her unborn fetus and that Brenda explained that she also had no interest in keeping the baby. It had already been set up that she would give birth and the baby would be given to an adoptive couple. And so she continued to heavily heavily abused drugs and alcohol guys the friend testified that she overheard brenda on the phone talking to the attorney that was handling the adoption proceedings and they would give brenda money which she would then use to buy dope so once brenda and her friend were arrested for drug possession the friend lost contact with brenda so she testified that she didn't know anything about the birth of the baby like she didn't know anything so Danielle Woodard, Brenda's daughter, was also brought into court from the prison she is housed in to testify at the later trial. She was in prison at the time under the charges of second-degree attempted murder of a police officer. Okay, She stated that Brenda had given birth to three children. Danielle was the first, and she had been born addicted to cocaine, by the way, and then 12 years later, Nicholas, and finally Zachary, who we will also get to in a bit. 
So Danielle testified that she had lived in several different homes with several different people, but she had lived with her mother some during her childhood, and she also lived with Brenda's mother, her grandmother, named Dorothy. So when Danielle was five years old, her mother stripped her naked and beat her. So side note, this last statement was actually quite triggering for me because my own mother did the exact same thing to me. I know you guys want to know more about me. I'm trying. Okay, so moving on. Danielle would say that her mother would force her to steal for her to support her mother's serious drug addiction. She testified that at the age of 12, she was put into foster care. At the age of 13, she was arrested and charged with her first felony for stealing a car. At 14, she was arrested again for car theft. When she was in high school, she was arrested for possession of a firearm at school, car theft and battery. So two years later, an arrest and charge of aggravated battery with a deadly weapon and car theft, and it just really keeps going from there. Danielle said that in 1998, she had been living with her mother and testified that Nicholas was in her mother's, quote, polluted womb at the time while she watched her mother drink and do drugs the summer before she was to start sixth grade. Brenda had driven and picked her up from a woman she had been left with for quite some time, and they stopped at a gas station. Brenda exited the car came back out with some kind of alcohol inside of those small brown paper bags, you know, and she was already drinking it while smoking a cigarette. Danielle said that she watched her mother pumping gas, and then she realized that her mother was pregnant based on her belly size and shape. She asked her mother if she was pregnant, and her mother told her that she had been raped, and that was that. She said that she lived in a run-down apartment with her mother for about two weeks before she called and begged her grandmother to come pick her up because, as she testified, Brenda was completely out of control. There were other junkies crashing there and using there, and they would pay Brenda for the privilege of having an enclosed place to use. Danielle specifically said that she was not a fan of her mother's. So this would have been just before the friend came back to Florida, found Brenda, and began crashing in Brenda's apartment to keep the timeline kind of organized. This is why the friend wasn't aware that Brenda even had a daughter. And I mean, imagine your friends not even knowing you had any children at all. Seems kind of strange. Because of Brenda being in trouble with the law often, even serving time for beating someone with a tire iron in her later years, And while she was on probation, she would have Danielle urinate in a cup. Then she would put that urine in a pill bottle and insert it within her, so to speak, so that it would maintain body temperature, which they do check for, so that when Brenda was being drug tested, well, it would come back clean. And Danielle stated that she could not remember a time in her life where her mother was not drinking or doing drugs. Danielle spoke of a time that summer where she and Dorothy, her grandmother, had come to Brenda's apartment where Brenda demanded her mother give her money. Dorothy explained to her that she didn't have any money. So, get this, apparently, Brenda forced her own mother to strip down naked to prove that she didn't have any money. But Danielle said Dorothy had kept her shoes on and that's where she had stashed what little money she had and so Brenda didn't get it. Danielle spoke about the day 
that Nicholas was born, and as she held him, she described him as a squirmy baby, a baby that moved around quite a lot. I mean, I can only imagine he was born addicted, right? She testified that she asked Brenda if they could keep baby Nicholas, to which Brenda screamed and said, get her out of here, meaning the hospital room. Also in the room was Dorothy and Linda Cruz, the adoptive mother. But she explained that her mother's addiction came first and foremost in her life before anything else, including Danielle, and she wanted Nicholas to have a better life, to take a better path. After Nicholas was taken away, Danielle and Brenda went back to the rundown apartment. Shortly after, they were evicted, and Brenda took herself and her daughter to go live in a crack house, and they also lived out of the car that Brenda had. Her mother had physically abused her her whole life, but after Nicholas, after the eviction and living in a crack house, Danielle decided to run away. She didn't see her mother again until she was 16 years old. She ran away at 12 for some perspective. At that point, Danielle was in a juvenile program. Brenda told her that she had had another baby boy named Zachary. This baby was also adopted by the same parents that had adopted Nicholas. The two were roughly a year apart, Nicholas and Zachary, about a year. So when asked about her mother's influence over her life and how her mother's choices affected her, she tried hard not to break down and she said, quote, in many, many ways. You see, Danielle, at the time of trial, was, as I said, in prison. She said she had 16 felonies of her own. She spoke about very serious anger issues that she had in her teens and young adulthood. She, too, got mixed up on drugs and alcohol. So this should give you a sense of, you know, the whole situation regarding Nicholas's entrance into the world. So he was indeed adopted immediately by Roger and Linda Cruz. They were practicing Roman Catholics. They were slightly older, with Roger being 61 and Linda 49 years old when the adoption took place. Roger was originally from New York. He had also had a wife prior to Linda, with whom he had four children. Linda was also originally from New York herself and had had a husband prior to Roger, though I didn't see that she had any children with the first husband. Linda's father had been from Serbia, and her mother had been from Puerto Rico. Now, sources stated that Roger and Linda were, quote, well-to-do, meaning that they had money. It was said that Roger worked in advertising, though one source said it was insurance, and Linda was a stay-at-home mom. They owned a home worth over half a million dollars. The home included a jacuzzi and a basketball court. It was said that Linda was thoughtful and disciplined and that she loved Nicholas and later Zachary very, very much. According to The Independent, Nicholas began showing signs of disturbing behavior from the age of about three Linda contacted a psychologist where he was diagnosed with antisocial personality disorder. Now, that source must be incorrect because children are not actually diagnosed with ASPD, so he would have been given the diagnosis of conduct disorder or oppositional defiant disorder. But the article went on to say, quote, he was seeing a psychiatrist, he was seeing a clinical psychologist, he had a case manager, in-home services, 
However, he continued to struggle with behavioral issues, end quote. At four years old, a preschool teacher observed that Nicholas had severe language and behavioral issues and would act like a tiger, curling his hands into paws and hissing at the other children if they came too close to him. He would push the other children, scratch at them, knock over furniture, and again, if the other children got too close to him, he would attack. This preschool teacher said an effective strategy to keep him calm was to put a sheet over a table where Nicholas could then go under it for privacy and he would be soothed enough to play with toys, look at picture books, and so on. And even as young as the other children were, they somehow knew to leave him alone when he was in there. So Papa Roger unfortunately died in 2004 when Nicholas was six years old from a heart condition. It was some time after this that Linda told Nicholas that he was adopted, so he didn't know until after his dad died. In later interviews, he indicated that this shocked him, and he became upset at his mother for waiting so long to tell him. Nicholas indicated that he was immediately curious about his birth parents, which we can't imagine most adopted children would be, but as he got older, he didn't pursue trying to find out who they were. But after Linda told him that he was adopted, he became abnormally terrified that Linda would forget to pick him up from school. This was something discussed with one of his child psychologists. That fear of abandonment was very, very real. A report I found about Nicholas during preschool indicated some interesting things, okay? So under the section labeled school and play behaviors, the check marks indicated that he appeared to enjoy school, participated in preschool activities, preferred to play with younger children, but what was not checked was the, quote, gets along well with other children. It was stated that he only had two or three friends, avoided or was uncomfortable with other children, was unwilling to share things such as toys, spent less than five minutes on most activities, was withdrawn and did not participate in activities, required excessive praise and encouragement, often fights with other children, kicked and threw things. Little Nicholas showed difficulty shifting from one activity to the next and required supervision nearly at all times. Nicholas was a biter and he was said to have some quite notable speech delays. Another mother who would bring her child over for play dates with little Nicholas stated she witnessed him not wanting to play with her child. He preferred to hide behind the blinds. There were also 15 sessions with a psychologist when Nicholas was eight to nine years old over a 13 month period. He was in first grade at eight years old. So to give you some context, most children are about six years old when they're in the first grade. So we are seeing that he was delayed enough that he was about two years older than his classmates. Now, his mother, Linda, had sought counseling because she believed Nicholas to be overly anxious and having a, quote, nervous temper, not being able to control his temper. On the intake form, there was a section titled Problem Checklist, and she had check difficulty concentrating, trouble with memory, unreasonable fears, anxious and tense, angry, acting before thinking, school problems, and loss of appetite. 
Linda listed 54 milligrams of Concerta as the medication he was taking at that time. So a little bit of reference. Concerta is prescribed for ADHD or Attention Deficit Hyperactivity Disorder and 54 milligrams per day for children ages 6 to 12 years old is the maximum dose. So that also certainly paints a picture, doesn't it? The most common side effects of this medication, for fear of sounding like those crazy commercials, include headaches, stomach pain, sleeplessness, and decreased appetite. So his loss of appetite kind of jives with the medication he was taking. Linda also indicated on this intake form that he was sometimes aggressive toward other children and was, quote, very sensitive. She said that he had gone to a special school or classroom for children for behavioral and emotional problems where the teacher to student ratio is much, much smaller, so he would have gotten more individual attention. The psychologist also testified that Nicholas was easily, quote, set off, and Zachary, his one-year younger half-brother, derived some pleasure from this, so they fought a bit above what would be considered average for siblings. Of course, I don't know what you would consider average. So the psychologist contacted the pediatrician who said not only was Nicholas dealing with ADHD, but that he also had conduct disorder. He believed Nicholas needed guidance on impulse control, behavior modification, but also that Linda needed some guidance with more consistent discipline with the boys. He stated that while it was obvious Linda loved the boys dearly, she was simply overwhelmed with the care of them. The psychologist indicated that perhaps Linda wasn't really able to practice at home the tips and skills he was trying to teach her to better help her handle the boys and Nicholas better able to control his outbursts. He said that he would have preferred to see them once a week, meaning 52 appointments in a year, but he only saw them 13 times total. So that's once a month, roughly. But the important thing to remember is that Linda did at least reach out for help and guidance with regards to Nicholas and his developmental and behavioral environmental issues during his younger childhood years. And during all of this, Nicholas had to change schools six times in three years to try to help him deal with his issues. One of the schools was specifically for children with emotional and learning disabilities, but even at this school, it was reported that he made threats against the other students. Something else that came up as Nicholas was later interviewed was that he said he had been sexually abused by a neighbor boy in order to be able to play the neighbor's Xbox because he said Linda hadn't bought them one to play on. Nicholas reiterated that his mother had convinced him that it didn't happen. Now, this evidence was stricken from court, so it was not used as one of the many factors in the case. But I thought it important to at least tell you guys that he said that this happened. Nicholas's 8th grade language arts teacher in 2013-2014 school year later testified in court. He was 15 years old at the time that she was his teacher. So, and this is eighth grade. He was 15 in eighth grade. So she indicated that Nicholas made her very uncomfortable as far as the first impression. She stated that she put him on her radar to keep an eye on. She had been made aware that he was a special education student with emotional, behavioral disorders, language, and speech needs. 
She indicated that he was not able to perform in her class very effectively from the beginning of the school year on. So she kept notes on Nicholas because she was a bit concerned about him. Some of her notes shown during the trial state that his vocabulary was on a fifth grade level, his mathematics were on a sixth grade level, and so on. She also noted that, quote, Nicholas causes unnecessary disruptions during class. Recently, the disruptions are all inappropriate for school and at times requires removal from the classroom, i.e. screaming using profanity, end quote. On the parent call log that the teacher kept after communicating with Linda, she indicated that she told Linda that he was using profanity in his essays. During a fire drill, Nicholas screamed and threw his books onto the floor when the alarm went off. She warned him about the drill prior to the alarm going off, and he indicated the screaming and throwing of his books was just to get attention. Linda was told Nicholas was sometimes late to class, meandering in the hallway for several minutes, being late, and no valid excuse or hall pass. She told Linda that Nicholas would start shouting in the auditorium while some pictures were being taken and making silly faces for the camera and not following instructions. When speaking with Nicholas, he expressed to this teacher that he became anxious about being assigned work and also about feeling as if he would not perform well. He said he felt he didn't have any friends and she indicated that he had poor interpersonal and coping skills. And then one document was shared with the court from again, his eighth grade year. It is a paper with a very short story on it, and on the right side of the paper was a wide column with empty lines labeled, My Notes. So this was for the students to write notes about the short story on the left side of the page. So Nicholas wrote in this notes section, quote, I hate you. I hate America. Life is shit. All it brings is pain and death. There is no point in living, end quote. He also wrote over the story text, quote, fuck you, I hate you, end quote, and, you know, so on. So you get the idea. He drew crude drawings of a penis twice on the page and a hand flipping the middle finger again at the teacher. You get the idea. And then some more notes the teacher kept about Nicholas was that he had been late to class and he was dress coded because he had come to class dressed as Spider-Man. She stated he had a lot of energy and was having a very difficult time staying focused. When she asked him questions, he would respond in a, quote, baby voice. When she asked him to please stop speaking that way, he continued to do so. He began acting aggressively, dropped his school stuff on the floor, and shouted, quote, fuck. She called security to have him removed from the classroom. One gets the sense that she was kind of afraid of him, and quite frankly, I don't blame her. And this instance was not rare, guys. It was the norm. Nearly every day, Nicholas displayed inappropriate sexual behavior, inappropriate verbal and physical outbursts, stealing things off of the teacher's desks, and so on. The big takeaway from this portion is that this seems to be when Nicholas began outwardly speaking about gun violence. The teacher made a note that stated he, quote, will find any excuse to bring up shooting guns or violence, end quote. So in 2013, 
psychiatrists recommended 15-year-old Nicholas be involuntarily admitted to a residential treatment facility. In 2016, Florida Department of Children and Families had to investigate him for posting to Snapchat, showing he had cut his arms and was talking about buying a gun. A school resource then suggested he again go under an involuntary psychiatric examination, and two guidance counselors agreed, but a mental institution did not agree. State investigators then reported that he had depression, autism, and ADHD, and had a history of trying to unalive himself. But then a psychiatrist would later testify that he was never officially diagnosed with autism, but that he had autistic traits. After an assessment, it was decided that he was, quote, at low risk of harming himself or others, end quote. Can you believe that? That one's hard for me to swallow, quite frankly. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. And indeed, Nicholas's social media posts were deemed pretty disturbing. He would post pictures of himself with a whole ass variety of weapons, including large knives, a shotgun, a pistol, and a BB gun. He posted his extremist views and was apparently linked to groups that posted anti-black and anti-Muslim slurs. He left comments on YouTube videos stating he wanted to die fighting and killing a, quote, shit ton of people. He made another comment on YouTube saying he was going to be a professional school shooter. Okay. He made threats against the police and was said to intend on mimicking the University of Texas Tower shooting done by Charles Whitman in 1966. Side note, I believe I covered him, but if not, let me know and I will because that is a super interesting case as well. So Nicholas expressed his interest in other mass murderers, such as the Columbine murderers, James Holmes from part one, um, and Elliot Roger, whom I've also definitely covered. He was said to have spent a significant amount of time reading and researching infamous mass shootings. It was stated that Nicholas was even expelled from one high school in 2017 when he was 19 years old due to disciplinary reasons. He was then transferred to an alternative school where the teachers there passed an email around that stated that he had made threats against other students and he was then banned from wearing a backpack on school grounds. But also this year. He apparently legally purchased an AR-15 semi-automatic rifle from a gun store after having passed a background check. And really, it's too bad that perhaps his mental health history couldn't have been part of that background check. I mean, that would have solved some problems right there, but then you have HIPAA laws and medical history, privacy and whatnot, so it's, it's really a sticky widget. But I digress. And in reality, again, he already owned several other rifles and a shotgun. It was said that on Instagram, he was part of a group chat where he expressed racist, 
homophobic, anti-Semitic, and xenophobic views. He expressed in that group chat that he hated the N-word that I will not say, and immigrants, and he talked about all of the weapons he had amassed. He said at one point, quote, I think I'm going to kill people, but later said in the chat that he had been joking. Nicholas also expressed an interest in joining the military, and he very much enjoyed hunting. And yet classmates later stated that during high school, he bragged about killing animals. He was so violent and terrifying at home that Linda was forced to call the police on occasion to help her try to calm him down and talk some sense into him. And truth be told, CNN stated that they were able to obtain a sheriff's office call log where it showed from 2008, when he was 10 years old, until 2017, when he was 19 years old, there were a minimum of 45 calls that were made into the office about Nicholas, Zachary, his half-brother, or just about the home in general. 45 calls, guys. A short blurb about Zachary is that he is the half-brother of Nicholas, though it is obvious that Zach's biological father was black. Zach was adopted just after Brenda gave birth to him by the Cruises, so the boys were raised together, and as I said before, they were close to a year apart. Now, I wasn't able to find whether or not Brenda used during her pregnancy with Zach, but one would assume that she certainly didn't slow down. There's zero indication that she had slowed down at all, really. And while he did have issues of his own, one of the family psychologists stated that Zach's issues were much, much less, considerably less. Zach, too, had a few brushes with the law, but he never had been accused of any violent crime as of this recording and to the degree I found in my research. Zach would later go on to say that he and Linda were scared of Nicholas because he would point guns at them over the slightest perceived issue. Zach later stated, quote, he was mentally ill and in hindsight, his actions were a cry for help. Nicholas shot his neighbor's chickens. He pointed a gun at his half-brother Zachary when they argued over a jar of Nutella. He held an AR-15 to his mother's head, yelling that he would blow her brains out. He was reportedly abusive to a girlfriend he had, but I couldn't find out anything about her in the time that I had to research. Nicholas went on to attend Marjorie Stoneman Douglas School, where he had been a member of its air rifle team but also compiled a long disciplinary record. And then in November 2017, at the age of 68, Linda Cruz died from pneumonia. And even though he was so abusive to her, it was said that he was devastated. It was reported that hardly anyone came to her funeral. This woman who was terrified for her son, of her son, but loved him and tried everything she knew to help him. Quote, I could tell it bothered Nick and it made us feel like we had no one in this world, Zachary told a news outlet. He said he watched Nicholas guzzle their mother's wine. Nicholas himself would later admit to using marijuana and Xanax to try to calm himself down, to self-soothe and feel some level of relief from the violent thoughts that were always swirling about in his head. And so with his mom gone, Nicholas was forced to move in with family friends in a Palm Beach County trailer park. 
He attended an adult education center and worked at a local Dollar Tree store to make money for himself. And I think this is a good spot to stop and sort of take in all this information and get some insight. We will start with what he was exposed to in the womb. The National Library of Medicine, National Center for Biotechnology Information, published an article regarding fetal cocaine exposure, neurologic effects, and sensory motor delays. This article states that studies suggest infants exposed to cocaine in utero have reduced growth, delays in sensory motor development, attention deficits, and depressed responsivity to social stimulation. Early alarming reports about pronounced neurobehavioral abnormalities in neonates exposed to cocaine in utero raised subsequent concerns about potential long-term neurodevelopmental effects on fetal and infant outcome. Cocaine's central and peripheral nervous system effects on adults have been widely recognized, thus raising questions regarding how cocaine easily crosses the placental barrier during gestation. In particular, central nervous system alteration during gestation secondary to cocaine exposure could result in long-term functional deficits manifesting in behavioral and cognitive abnormalities. Maternal cocaine use also results in a linked rise in maternal blood pressure as a result of vasoconstriction and tachycardia or increased pulse, decreasing uterine and placental blood flow. This interference with blood flow to the fetus reduces oxygen supply and may cause chronic hypoxia or insufficient oxygen, which interferes with normal fetal development. Such impairments make the fetal brain highly vulnerable to changes in blood pressure, including hemorrhages in the immediate neonatal period, constriction of blood vessels after cocaine exposure, a well-documented effect in animals, decreases nourishment to the fetus and reduces brain growth. A San Diego study reported an eight-fold increase in cranial ultrasound abnormalities in term infants exposed to cocaine, a finding which was replicated in a separate Boston study. And folks, it just gets worse from there. As for Brenda's alcohol abuse during her pregnancy, the CDC published an article titled Alcohol Use During Pregnancy that went on to say what we already know, Alcohol use in the first three months of pregnancy can cause the baby to have abnormal facial features. Growth and central nervous system problems like low birth weight, behavioral problems, can occur from alcohol use anytime during pregnancy. The baby's brain is developing throughout pregnancy and can be affected by exposure to alcohol at any time. Alcohol in the mother's blood passes to the baby through the umbilical cord. Alcohol use during pregnancy can cause miscarriage, stillbirth, and a range of lifelong physical, behavioral, and intellectual disabilities. These disabilities are known as fetal alcohol spectrum disorders, FASDs. So children with FASDs might have the following characteristics and behaviors. So small head size, shorter than average height, low body weight, poor coordination, hyperactive behavior, difficulty with attention, poor memory, difficulty in school, 
learning disabilities, speech and language delays, intellectual disabilities or low IQ, poor reasoning and judgment skills, sleep disturbances, vision or hearing problems, and possible issues with the heart, kidney, or their very bones. And then we have the smoking that Brenda did and was likened to a, quote, chimney. So again, from the CDC, infants exposed to cigarettes may be born too small as smoking slows the fetus's growth. Premature birth is common, though I don't believe Nicholas was premature, but don't hold me to that. Smoking during pregnancy can damage the fetus's internal organs, which will last throughout that baby's life. Smoking during pregnancy significantly increases the risk of birth defects and developmental delays, as well as eyesight problems and so on, and we know Nicholas needed some pretty hefty glasses. I mean, what more needs to be said here about what Brenda exposed her developing children to? And again, it would seem that Zachary fared far better even after this kind of exposure, but, you know, perhaps she didn't use as much or hopefully something. I don't know. But her serious drug and alcohol abuse and smoking while she was pregnant and the known effects that that has on a fetus seems to just be textbook for his later issues. Once he was adopted after his birth, he was raised in a loving and privileged environment. While there didn't seem to be a whole lot on his relationship with his adopted father, he did die when Nicholas was still a small child. But, you know, I didn't hear any complaints either. And Linda did the best that she knew how to do with the skills she had. She provided an enviable home, amenities that many of us would have died to have. She loved Nicholas and did the best she could to comfort him and address his unfounded fears. She sought out help for him when it became glaringly obvious that he had some serious issues. Once she sought out help for him, he was diagnosed with ADHD and conduct disorder or oppositional defiant disorder. They are not the same. They are different, but he sources used both labels, so I'm just putting both out there. Now, if you've been with me for a while, I did a true crime science episode on ADHD, and I think the general public is knowledgeable enough about this, but let's dabble, shall we? ADHD is one of the most common neurodevelopmental disorders of childhood. It is usually first diagnosed in childhood and often lasts into adulthood. Children with ADHD may have trouble paying attention, controlling impulse behaviors, or they may act without thinking about what the results will be. They may be overly active. Signs and symptoms, according to the CDC, include daydreaming a lot, forgetting or losing things frequently, being squirmy or fidgety, talk excessively, making careless mistakes or taking unnecessary risks, having a hard time fighting temptation, having trouble taking turns, and may have more difficulty getting along with others. There are basically three kinds. Predominantly inattentive presentation, where it is hard for the individual to organize or finish a task, to pay attention to details, or to follow instructions or conversations. The person is easily distracted or forgets details of daily routines. The second is predominantly hyperactive impulsive presentation. The person fidgets and talks a lot. It is hard to sit still for long, in other words, for a meal or while doing homework. 
Smaller children may run, jump, or climb constantly. The individual feels restless and has trouble with impulsivity. Someone who is impulsive may interrupt others a lot, grab things from people, or speak at inappropriate times. It is hard for the person to wait their turn or listen to directions. A person with impulsiveness may have more accidents and injuries than others. And then the third and final type is combined presentation. So symptoms of the above two types are equally present in the person. So the cause or causes and risk factors for ADHD are unknown, but current research shows that genetics play an important role. Recent studies link genetic factors with ADHD. In addition to genetics, scientists are studying other possible causes and risk factors, including brain injury, exposure to environmental risks like lead during pregnancy or at a young age, alcohol and tobacco use during pregnancy, premature delivery, and low birth weight. I mean, do I really need to say more? And then we have the conduct disorder and or oppositional defiant disorder. Both labels were given to Nicholas separately. And I don't know which he would have most likely dealt with, but just to touch on them, there are several important facts to remember about oppositional defiant disorder versus conduct disorder. So oppositional defiant disorder and conduct disorder are related, but separate childhood conditions and are types of childhood disruptive behavior disorders. Disruptive behavior disorders are characterized by children acting out against other children or adults through defiant and disrespectful behavior. Alternatively, a child may be disobedient when it comes to accepting typical societal structures and norms. The Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders 5th Edition, DSM-5, classifies both conduct disorder and oppositional defiant disorder as disruptive impulse control and conduct disorders. While there are many similarities between the two, there are also quite a few differences between these conditions. Children and adolescents may develop both of these behavior disorders or may develop one after the other. Often children struggle with oppositional defiant disorder or conduct disorder and a co-occurring condition like ADHD, which we know Nicholas had. Both oppositional defiant disorder and conduct disorder have roots in control issues. Oppositional defiant disorder involves problems with being controlled, whereas conduct disorder involves problems with being controlled and the need to exert control over others. So there is a difference between the two. Nicholas was also diagnosed with depression, which for time's sake I'll brush past because I think we are all familiar with depression and how it affects people and especially children. A psychologist stated that Nicholas displayed autistic traits but was reluctant to diagnose him as such. And then after Roger died and Linda told him he was adopted, we see a very high level of anxiety and fear about being abandoned, which is not uncommon in children who were adopted. So what we see here is a rather deeply concerning cocktail of very serious issues around Nicholas, from what he was exposed to in the womb to possible inherited negative genetic traits that his older sister and biological mother both displayed, and then his very intense developmental delays throughout his early life. 
I do feel that Linda did the best she knew how to do, considering how very hard it would be to try to maintain and foster the growth and health and happiness of a child with this level of special needs, while also keeping your patience and composure. I'm not throwing any shade or hate to her whatsoever. She tried to get him help on several occasions, worked with doctors and school and staff and, you know, all the things. So let's get back into the story. It didn't take long after Linda died for Nicholas to spiral. He started recording himself talking about going to the Parkland High School and shooting it up. A friend, or at least acquaintance of his, anonymously called a tip line to report that Nicholas was talking about shooting up a school. There was a video found on his phone where he said, Hello, my name is Nick, and I'm going to be the next school shooter of 2018. My goal is at least 20 people with an AR-15 and a couple tracer rounds. I think I can do good done. Location is Stone Douglas in Parkland, Florida. It's going to be a big event. And when you see me on the news, you'll all know who I am. <laughs> You're all going to die. Can't wait. Today is the day. The day that it all begins. The day of my massacre shall begin. All the kids in school will run in fear and hide. From the wrath of my power, they will know who I am. I am nothing. I am no one. My life is nothing and meaningless. Everything that I hold dear, I let go beyond your half. Every day I see the world ending another day. Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive help supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. I live a lone life, live in seclusion and solitude. I hate everyone and everything. With the power of my AR, you will all know who I am. I had enough of being told what to do and when to do. I had enough of being telling me that I'm an idiot and a dumbass. So three months after Linda died in February 2018, the then 19-year-old Nicholas caught an Uber and gained access to the Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School grounds through a gate that was unsecured and unmanned, but had been just opened because school was about to be let out in roughly 20 minutes. He was spotted and recognized by a campus monitor who radioed a colleague that he was walking, quote, purposefully toward Building 12. The campus monitor, unfortunately, did not declare a code red lockdown. Armed with his rifle, Nicholas entered a hallway and began firing indiscriminately at students and teachers. The code red was still not engaged because, apparently, no one could agree on who had the authority to do it. On and on he shot through classrooms until he stopped. Then he fled the building by blending in with students who were also running away. 
He walked to a fast food restaurant, stopping at a mall to get a soda on the way, and stayed around there before leaving on foot at 3.01 p.m. At about 3.40 p.m., police spotted Nicholas and stopped him roughly two miles from the school and arrested him as the suspected shooter. So in total, he shot and murdered 17 people that afternoon, 14 students and three staff. One of the teachers killed had just unlocked a classroom for kids to go run and hide in. Another member of the staff, a security guard, while Nicholas shot and killed him while the man was using his own body as a shield for two students behind him. The third was shot and killed trying to save another student. The unimaginable loss of the 14 children that day, I, don't, I just, I can't. I feared this would happen to my own, so I can't even imagine, can't even begin to imagine what these children and then their parents have suffered. Bless them, really. A 15-year-old boy used his own body to barricade a doorway, trying to and successfully saving over 20 students in the classroom. He was shot five times, but he survived. And as if that is not intense and horrific enough, the survivors didn't all fare well either. Many suffered survivor's guilt and PTSD. They struggled horribly after this incident, and there were unfortunately a couple who, let's say, opted out because they just couldn't cope. Nicholas had drawn or otherwise put swastikas on items found at the crime scene. So he was arrested, and after the trial, much of which is on YouTube if you are interested, he was found guilty of all of his charges and sentenced to 34 consecutive life sentences, no possibility of parole. There were many survivors and family members who were very upset that he did not get the death penalty, and I don't really blame them for that at all. So what is he up to today? Well, according to an article from the Tampa Bay Times, quote, some family members of the victims have openly wished for Nicholas Cruz's fellow inmates to make the 24-year-old killer pay for his crimes with his life, end quote. I think we all know what that means. In an unusually secretive move, the state has refused to disclose the location of the now 24-year-old Nicholas. The Florida Department of Corrections is permitted under state law to withhold information that would ordinarily be disclosed if publishing the information creates a security risk. So since there have been threats and whatnot, they're keeping his whereabouts secret and therefore his day-to-day -day activities and so on are under lock and key. So actually, I guess this podcast and the last didn't really get to be a where are they now situation because we don't know what both Nicholas and James are up to now. Disappointing, I know, but it also makes sense, right? So just like part one, this one is quite a long one, and I still have so many thoughts about these two. I asked my patrons, and they voted and agreed that it would be fine for me to make a part three to kind of explore this a bit further. I certainly hope you guys won't mind that either. A little compare and contrast, if you will. And as always, you tell me what you think about this episode. But most importantly, thank you guys so much for listening because I know you could be listening to anyone else, but you chose me and it still continues to floor me, but I really appreciate you guys. Have a good night. Thanks. Bye-bye. 
uh, anybody who killed more than two or three people was a mass murderer. And whether it was all at one place or over an extended period of time, and then uh, in the early 80s, they came up with this differentiation called serial killing. 